Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined tonight by Drs. Barry Chan and Barry Casson. How are you two? Doing pretty well, Dan. And doing very well, thank you. It's not a contest. Danny, I haven't seen you for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's been a minute, Barry. Thanks for uh, uh, you know, deciding to come back on the show. It's a great haircut. It's a great haircut. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> that. I wasn't fishing for that, but uh, it's always nice to hear. It is a podcast, so uh, listeners can't see the mohawk that I have. Um, <laughs> so we're actually we're really lucky today. We have um, the the lead medical resident at the Royal Columbian Hospital, Dr. Amanda Ames. And uh, Amanda, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on today. Oh, thank you for coming. Um, would you like to introduce yourself for, for a moment, let everyone know who you are and uh, what you're up to? Yeah, so I'm one of the internal medicine residents at the University of British Columbia. I'm in my third year right now. Uh, I've also had the pleasure of being the lead medical resident at the Royal Columbian, and I'm applying to nephrology currently and just waiting to hear for the karma match here in a couple weeks. Well, we're, we're rooting for you. So we're looking forward to this case, and so maybe we'll hand it. If there's no other business, Barry's, any, any business to take care of before we jump in? Maybe we should just refer to me as Joe. It would be easier, I think, because otherwise it's going to be very confusing about asking Barry to comment. You already have last names that are distinct, but that would be fine. It's Joe. true. It's true. But I'm, I'm just aware of the lag as you asked us to, to introduce ourselves. Okay. All right. All right, Joe. All right. So, Amanda, we'll, we'll hand it over to you and uh, take it away. All right. So our patient today is a 69-year-old male with a history of hypertension and acid reflux who was referred to the emergency department after outpatient lab work demonstrated an elevated creatinine at 630 and a moderately elevated calcium of 3.29. His past medical history is fairly unremarkable. He does have a long-standing history of hypertension that was diagnosed more than 20 years ago, and it's really unclear how well controlled his blood pressure has been as he does not keep track of any of his home blood pressure readings. He did have a visit to the emergency department about one year ago for a right abdominal wall MSK strain and we have a blood pressure reading from that visit that shows that it was 148 on 65 at that time and he's otherwise really healthy he just has a history of the acid reflux and migraines and his medications include Ramipril 10 milligrams twice a day and Pantoprazole 40 milligrams twice a day and he takes a sumatriptan as needed for the migraine headaches. He's been taking these medications for many years and has been on these doses and has been pretty stable. In terms of his social history, he's from the Lower Mainland and lives with his partner. He works for the city where he spends a lot of time outdoors and does a lot of physical labor. He is an ex-smoker with a roughly 30-pack year history but quit about 15 years ago and drinks one to two beers per night and denies any other substance use history. So this man's story is that he was feeling completely well up until about two weeks ago, where he started noticing decreased urinary output, mostly in the, in the evenings is when he was noticing it, and then otherwise he wasn't having any kind of daytime urinary symptom and denies any hematuria, dysuria, or frothy urine. Because of this decreased urine output, he went to the walk-in clinic a few days ago where the family physician ordered some outpatient law, which demonstrated creatinine of 630 and then the moderately elevated calcium. And that's why he was referred to the emergency department for further work on the management. On review in the emergency department, he confirms that he's really been feeling quite well until two weeks ago, and there's no antecedent illnesses such as flu-like illnesses or diarrheal illnesses. And he's been eating and drinking quite well. He says that maybe he's been drinking about two liters of fluid a day and denies any NSAIDs, calcium, or vitamin D use. And then he's really just been taking his Ramaprol and Patoprazole that he's been taking quite consistently. Otherwise, his weight's been really stable, and he denies any other constitutional symptoms, like night sweats, fevers, chills, or fatigue, and doesn't have any malignancy history, but it doesn't look like he's up to date on fit testing and can't remember if he's ever done that before. And from the hypercalcemic perspective, he's really asymptomatic, and so he's really just been treated with a couple liters of normal saline, and then has started on a continuous IV infusion of the normal saline, and then got a dose of penetrating. Sorry to interrupt, but I have to admit that Urinary symptoms in a 69-year-old man, I, most people would celebrate that they've decreased their urinary output <laughs> at 69. 
not go mm-hmm. to the walk-in clinic to find out yeah. why. They, do you, I mean, may, maybe God intervened. I mean, suddenly uh, you're back to normal. Um, so what was the significance? What was the significance? I mean, he didn't void for 24 hours or 56 hours or what, why would he even no. go there? You know, it's an interesting question. And, and he just said it wasn't like he was not voiding for 24 hours or 36 hours. Like there was no prolonged history. And he says maybe there was some increased nocturnal urgency symptoms. And so I think combined, maybe the, the nocturnal urgency symptoms and then just overall noticing less urinary output. But he's not really able to quantify how much that is. But I agree. Um, so yeah. how about Barry Chan, what do you think about uh, the story so far? Um, anything that's or, or what are your, kind of your major elevator thoughts on the way down to see this person and emerge? Yeah, it was a very nondescript findings. I mean, at this age, where hypercalcemia is not uncommon in of its, itself. He could maybe having polyuria and he does not know about it and he's not having the thirst response, give himself a pre-renal AKI that I can, that I can see. Mm-hmm. Hypercalcemia at this age, you think of primary hyperparathyroidism or cancer. Those are the two big ones you think of. But if he's so asymptomatic, it also makes you wonder. I don't know if he has ever had hypercalcemia before, but you think of uh, familial uh, hypocalcemic hypercalcemia. They're fairly asymptomatic. That's just a bystander thing that we found. So that's 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 how I'll be thinking about that uh, in this way. Okay. So do we do we want to talk about then what kind of our initial tests are going to be? How you typically approach? How you would approach this AKI and uh, hypercalcemia? What would you folks yeah. send off kind of out, out of the gate? I, I mean, back to, you know, I'm a great proponent of the history because giving two, a laboratory finding, uh, two laboratory findings, you can create a differential diagnosis without talking to the patient. I mean, asymptomatic hypercalcemia and, and acute renal failure in the 69-year-old is myeloma. I mean, you could make that case easily. Mm-hmm. But Usually the history guides us into what we're going to do. We can do a whole variety of investigations, but it just, I'm back to the symptom presentation of decreased urine output and, uh, or de- I'm not even sure it's urine output. Is it urine output or just decreased frequency or what is it decreased? He thinks it's both frequency and urine output, that just the volume seems to be less over the last couple of weeks. I mean, in a simple term, um, given his, uh, I'm back to the fact that I'm invoking the deity again, but in the simplest terms, his prostate's enlarged and he's, uh, he's decreased his urinary output and, uh, and has this, these symptoms of urgency. And, uh, that's, I mean, that's a very simplistic way, but there's, as I say, we could do a variety of in laboratory investigations and imaging investigations and, and still be a little confused. Well, that's why they call you Wise Joe, because those are um, some, some really some Danny, helpful, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to turn this over to you, Danny. What do you think? Um, well, I, I, you know, with the hypercalcemia that we've described as mild, we don't know if that is part of, you know, a, a cause of renal injury related to or a separate thing. So do we lump them together? Or do we split them? And with every AKI, we're trying to figure out, is it pre-renal, renal, or post-renal? And uh, you've, you know, a, a good case has been made here that demographically, the things we have to think about are very sinister and less sinister, and enlarged prostate really should come with some lower urinary tract symptoms, I would expect. And so I think part of ruling out that, you know, post renal is going to include some uh, ultrasound imaging. And I think that we, I, you know, I don't know how how interested you guys are working up the hypercalcemia right off the bat. I think I probably would. And uh, I would I would certainly be wanting a urinalysis as part of just the very initial workup. I think you're right. Like the, the history should tell us if someone like, well, do they have symptoms concerning for myeloma? Um, do they have symptoms concerning for, you know, a, a drug reaction? Doesn't sound like it. Been on this stuff for quite some time. Um, so yeah, we're, we're going to I think we're going to start with our standard baseline AKI and hypercalcemia workup separately and go from there. And uh, meanwhile, Barry, I'm sure you will 
be doing a, a very, very careful physical exam looking for any clues um, to an underlying cause. Well, Barry and I both agree that uh, physical examination would be very helpful. Um, yeah. and, I, and I have to admit that the part of the physical that would be less helpful is the prostate exam. And why do you say that? Well, because it doesn't really inform you. I mean, if it's large on the outside, it may not be large on the inside. And if it's normal on the outside, it may be large on the inside. And so I think that uh, I'm not sure the urologic literature, but I, I, I suspect that it's just not that helpful. But certainly if you felt a bladder up to his umbilicus or you uh, had other findings on physical examination, that would be very directive. I'm never going to argue with someone telling me that a digital rectal exam is <laughs> not going to be helpful. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with that. So, Amanda, did you folks find anything valuable on physical exam? Did that uh, did that lead you anywhere? Yes, actually. So Fabulous. I knew Dr. Kasten was wanting a physical examination here, so I have it for you. So Excellent. on exam, the patient is afebrile at 36.7 and mildly tachycardic with a heart rate of 102. His blood pressure is 165-189 with a rest rate of 19, and he's saturating at 99% on room air. In general, he looked pretty well on general inspection, and he's alert and orientated to person, place, and time. And his cardiac is normal with a normal S1 and S2. There's no murmurs or extra heart sounds that are appreciated, and his JVP is about one centimeter above the sternal angle. There's no evidence of any sacral edema or any edema in the lower extremity. His respiratory exam was completely unremarkable. And then his abdominal exam, it's soft, non-tender, without any rebound tenderness or any guardian on palpation. But there is a positive Castell slide, and the, the spleen is palpated just uh, below the left costal margin. And then you do a, a thorough lymph node exam and can't appreciate any palpable lymph nodes. I also have some investigations, too. Yeah, let's get, yeah no, let's, get a, let's get some baseline investigations. We'll go from there. Great. So in terms of some of the baseline investigations, the, the CBC shows a mild pancytopenia with a white count of 3.1, and the differential shows low neutrophils and lymphocytes of 1.6 and 0.9 respectively. And the hemoglobin is mildly low at 109 with an MCV of 96, and platelets are 111. His sodium is mildly low at 129, but potassium is okay at 4.4 and bicarbs low at 16, but he doesn't have an anion gap. Uh, as we've discussed, his creatinine is very elevated. It's actually 670 in the emergency department. And then when you go back through the provincial system for a documented baseline creatinine, he doesn't actually have any previous blood work apart from the, the blood work that was done with the family uh, physician a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. And then sorry, calcium- Amanda, sorry yeah. Amanda, you said no anion gap, but does he have a small anion gap? His anion gap is 12. Okay, thanks. And his albumin is 45. Uh, his calcium is moderately elevated at 3.29, and phosphate is high at 2.2, and then the magnesium is normal. And then I, I think you guys said that you wanted a preliminary uh, workup for the hypercalcemia, so I can tell you that the PTH is appropriately low at 0.8. And then otherwise, you do some liver enzymes, bilirubin, albumin, INRPTT, all are normal. And I think you also asked for some urine studies, which showed Trace protein in blood, but the urine microscopy is completely bland and unremarkable. And the urine ACR is mildly up at three points. So stop there. I know I've given you guys a lot of numbers, so please let me know if there's anything you guys want me to repeat from the investigation. Nope, I, uh, I memorized them all. Um, <laughs> so maybe let's start, uh, Barry Chan. Yes. How, how are you kind of breaking down all this data we just got? There's an, there's an awful lot here, and I'm wondering how you're lumping and splitting into your problems list. Yeah, so I'm still focusing on the primary reason why he was referred and wasn't any symptoms. He did have reduced urine output, which is, I think it's just his kidneys are not working. He's just not making urine. And then the hypercalcemia. So I think the fact that his JVP is not elevated, anything that might be on the lower side. So, okay, maybe he could be a bit hypovolemic from the hypercalcemia. Could be. And then... I might be able to explain the two. I don't see there is, or doesn't sound like on physical exam, there is a post-renal cause. And then on the urine, the, the basic screen for urinary, uh, like the urine dip and the urine AC, I don't think there is an intra-renal cause as glaring. So I'm going with that to explain the creatinine for now. And then the, and then the fluids that was given in the norm, in the emergency pad will, will be telltelling in due time. 
But hypercalcemia, the low pH is where it's helpful. And so it just, I'm going to hold the pH dependent category, the hyper, hyperparathyroidism, the tertiary, uh, the pH non-dependent categories. Uh, so we can go through that later. But then um, Amanda mentioned that the Castell sign was positive and the spleen tip was palpated. So you're thinking about splenomegaly and how can I fit that with the PTH and the pancytopenia? I'm thinking you know, there probably is a hematological cause here and there's a hematological cause. There is one way to tie in with the hypercalcemia is that some lymphomas or macrophage-related disease can activate one can produce 1.5-hydroxyvitamin-Ds and the enzymes, and this can be hypercalcemia. That's kind of my... Given what I have so far, that's what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. And Amanda, do we have like a baseline chest x-ray on this guy by any chance? Mm, the, the chest x-ray is completely unremarkable. Uh, Barry Casson, what are your thoughts uh, so far? Anything that you want to add to what other Barry had to say? Uh, not really. Uh, the um, I mean, we're tempted... It, it, there's there's a few things that you could sort of go off in different directions, but it's really we don't have anything hard. Uh, I mean, the spleen tip is felt. It's got mild pancytopenia. I mean, we're calling this an AKI, but the last creatinine was a I think I guess a year ago. So it's possible that we're dealing maybe not with an AKI. Maybe he's got chronic renal disease. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm, I guess the first, I have to say with all these investigations, the first investigation I would have done would be an abdominal ultrasound just to see, to, to ensure that he didn't have an obstructive uropathy. Um, and that was the, without sort of proceeding to all of these things, because I don't think we're any closer. We can still, uh, we can give a large differential according to, and make a Venn diagram to see what overlaps, but I don't have any clues from his uh, presentation. Hmm. Okay, and, and I'll just clarify, actually, just about the, the kidney function and the baseline. He actually doesn't have any baseline creatinine zone care connect apart from the creatinine that was a couple of days ago. Yeah, I mean, the phosphate's, nor, uh, the phosphate's high, and, uh, and the, you know, the calcium, in, I mean, it's the PTH that's the teller, I guess, mm -hmm, in this situation, because mm -hmm. the calcium can be anywhere, up, down, intermediate. Uh, but the PTH is certainly low, so uh, it's. I think there's something exogenous to the kidneys that's causing the PTH to be low. And that's this, and I think Barry Chan's observation or or hypothesis is certainly fine. But I don't think we have enough information at this point to uh, to come to a firmer conclusion. Okay, so shall we hand it back over then, Amanda? Um, what did you folks do as kind of your next set of tests? So just like Dr. Kasson said, then the next step for us, is, especially given some of those urinary symptoms, is we got a, a renal ultrasound overnight. And it really doesn't show any hydronephrosis. There's some small bilateral renal cysts, and then there is prostatomegaly noted on the ultrasound. Barry, you know your prostates. That was a good call. Well, <laughs> I, I, I've, I've experienced, I've, I know the illness <laughs> script, and I've scripted the illness, if you will. I will. Um, okay, so so the, the prostate's enlarged, but it, but it doesn't appear to be a post-renal. There's no obvious post-renal cause. So we can... Barry, are you happy to exclude that as the underlying cause for the moment? Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. fabulous. All right, um, so you get that ultrasound. So we, 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 this is not post-renal. We're looking at renal and pre-renal for that elevated... Uh, for, the, for the elevated creatinine. All right. What do you get next, yeah. Amanda? What happens? We, we ended up actually getting further imaging for this patient, and part mm -hmm. of the dilemma with the AKI was whether or not you use contrast. And so we ended up going with a CT chest abdopelvis with no contrast. And what it showed is there is no evidence of any intrathoracic malignancy or mediastinal lymphadenopathy. There's a few tiny nonspecific pulmonary nodules, the largest measuring four millimeters, but the recommendation for that was just a follow-up CT in three months. Uh, and again, in keeping with the physical exam, the spleen is enlarged, measuring 15.7 centimeters. There was a small non-obstructive left renal stone, but no evidence, again, of hydronephrosis. And it says that the prostate was bulky with mild circumferential thickening uh, of the urinary bladder, likely related to chronic outlet obstruction. There's no ascites or any other suspicious adenopathy, and then it gives the caveat that there's no contrast, so some of the intra-abdominal organs in their examination is limited. Hmm. Okay. Barry Chan, 
back to you. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you make it? Because there were there were some findings where they gave potential explanations. Are you happy with those explanations? Like, do these things link in nicely with? Um, you had made the the point about granulomatous um, diseases causing uh, high vitamin D levels. Um, yeah, I, you know the pro- there were some abnormalities of the prostate. Do we buy their uh, their interpretation? Yeah, I think the I don't know much about the prostate, but how how that would tie into all this other than he has large prostate and um, he it, there's at least radiographic features of chronic uh, retention because the bladder wall thickened. That's usually the sign. But I'm just surprised that he had no symptoms. So I probably would go on back and just ver- re-verify symptoms. Like, do you actually have any obstructive symptomology? And he was just going to go hiding it. But uh, the rest of the scan it doesn't tell me much, uh, too much. And we re-verified the splenomegaly, the pulmonary nodules. Um, I, I don't know really what to make of that. The main thing is that this scan, what we're doing is just to look for uh, malignancy as one of the causes for uh, non-PTH dependent uh, hypercalcemia. The, again, it was still with the splenomegaly. If I have to tie it in with the hypercalcemia, then then this lymphoma I will be thinking about that. If they do tie or pulmonodules, could be sarcoid. Sarcoid can give you splenomegaly. It can give you hypercalcemia. That's I can see it. There's no lytic lesion. Sounds like from the CT chest of the pelvis, at least within those sets of bones. There's none of that, so it doesn't make you think of um. I'm but myeloma could be there, but it would make you think of that if you see those lesions there. Okay. Barry, Katzen, your thought? Yeah, I think at this point, um, I agree with Barry uh, in his thoughts, but I think what I would do at this point is, one is I'd go back and take a history. Uh, there's something that, that we're not, we're not, I mean, this, I think, I think we're showing that this is a renal cause for his problem, or at least affecting the kidney. He's not pre-renal and he's not post-renal. He's got some post-renal symptoms but and uh, and findings, but that's not his explanation. So I'd go, I'd see, you know, what medications he's taking. I mean, did he does he enjoy the vitamin D and calcium that he's been taking? Does he have any history of, as Barry pointed out, sarcoid or any granulomatous disease? Uh, in his work, is there anything that he's related to that he's exposed to any, and so on? I, w- I would... I just don't quite understand enough about him to make uh, any uh, any more comments. I mean, the easy thing to do would be to say, well, let's measure this and do this, and he's got pancytopenia and do a marrow, and we can blah, blah, blah. I mean, he needs to have an SPEP, but we talked about that initially. But I think I go back and, and uh, mm. try and figure out what the heck's happening and know more about this guy. I think um, when we eventually get popular enough to have merch, um, we'll make a t-shirt with, I'd go back and take a history. (laughs) (laughs) That that comes up like eight times an episode. Yeah, I I think that's very reasonable, right? You have these new findings and there's things to go back and specifically chat about. If someone comes in and says, I have no symptoms, that doesn't mean there's no history uh, to be had. Mm -hmm. Or even if the symptom is simple, doesn't mean there's no history. It just might mean you have to work backwards sometime from some of the labs and, and, and restart once you have those like new findings. And I think that that's something that you uh, orient us to often. Um, you also, I think, often orient us to, you know, social history and exposures and things like that. And, you know, a 30-pack year history, nothing to sneeze at. I think when I do a CT and it shows me something that, like, I did not, like, expect to see, I, I, I store it in the back of my head. So, like, there were the comments on the bladder. Well... And, and the prostate, I like checking things off the list to be like, all right, like I've, I, that's definitely like not relevant. He doesn't have a prostate cancer. He doesn't. He, he on this CT he does not have bony metastases or anything, but prostate can go to bones and can cause hypercalcemia that way, I suppose. So I, I'd probably call urology and just be like, can you please just look at this CT? Is it as described? Are they calling this right so that I cannot think about it anymore? I, you know, I think with splenomegaly and the cytopenias, I, I think I would be, and, and the possibility that there's a lymphoma somewhere, um, even though you pointed out like there's no significant lymphadenopathy, um, I, I think I would be looking towards 
you know, bone marrow biopsy, or if the certainly if the pulmonary nodules are large enough, that would be a really nice um, location to get some tissue from. That might be quite helpful. Um, I guess we haven't really talked about uh, renal biopsy. Um, I, I think we try and get some workup, some medical workup done before we go to biopsies. So maybe we'll, um, it, you know, can you, you both give me your kind of brief thoughts on when you would start, you know, getting tissue? Are, are we there yet? Do we need a, maybe we need a little more time? Have we got a history yet? <laughs> well, you go back and you ask about the vitamin D and the calcium, and he says that he has not been taking any extra supplements. There's no history of any thiazides. Um, and then in terms of granulomatous disease, there's no personal or family history, and there's no TB risk factors. Um, he's a Caucasian, has been born and raised in the Lower Mainland. Um, and then you ask a little bit further about his career, and he says he works uh, for the city, and he's primarily outdoors, but he does like he does maybe have some exposures with like emptying garbages, and he like blows leaves, so it's like primarily out- outdoors. He blows leaves. With the leaf floor, sorry. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, there. that sort of is the key to the case. I'll step back now. <laughs> Anything else specifically on history you want? Any B symptoms, B type symptoms, uh, or bony pains, Amanda? No, there's no constitutional symptoms whatsoever. His weight has been very stable, and he denies any bony pain. Hmm. So this two simple tests that I would do before I did any biopsy was one is, and although this is controversial in terms of a diagnostic test, I think it would be helpful, and that's a PSA. It wouldn't, if it was elevated, it would be helpful. If it were normal, it wouldn't be. I mean, it's still possible that he'd have a problem. And and the the second is the um, is the protein electrophoresis. I mean, those two tests before mm-hmm. attempting biopsying his kidneys, his nodules, or his marrow would be things that I think would be helpful. And and, and free light chains and sort of that whole package. All right, Amanda, back to you. So what did you folks elect to do as your kind of next round of testing? I will say that the PSA was actually done as an outpatient too by the family physician, um, given some of the urinary symptoms, and he it's normal. Um, and then at this point, there was a concern about whether or not there was a lymphoproliferative disorder. And so we did talk to hematology quite early on. And, and they thought, given the AKI, the hypercalcemia, and the pancytopenia, they actually elected to proceed with a, a bone marrow biopsy within like about 24 hours, even before the, the SF and the serum free light chains had come back. The bone marrow biopsy is really unremarkable on the, the preliminary result that comes back the following day. And then also, at that time, the SPAP comes back, doesn't show any monoclonal band, uh, and the kappa to lambda ratio um, is 1.83, which is consistent with his renal dysfunction. Mm, darn. Okay, so <laughs> we didn't get... We didn't get <laughs> I mean, we got useful information, but it didn't, like, solve the case. I suppose that would have been a little too easy for this uh, mm. for this podcast. All right, guys, now what? So we don't have a primary hematologic cause identified on the bone marrow biopsy. It doesn't rule out all hematologic causes, but uh, what are you thinking at this point? What's next? What are you going to do? Maybe Barry Chan will start with you. Yeah, I would like to send for the the 25-hydroxy and 125-hydroxy vitamin Ds just to help narrow down what category of disease I'm dealing with. Like, m- most likely it's going to be the 125 category. I'm still thinking, of, I'm stuck on that diagnostic track in my mind but that would i think that would help narrow things down have has he had an hiv assessment his hiv is sent and it comes back as negative can you explain that one why were you thinking specifically of hiv over other infections what was on your mind well i I mean he's asymptomatic Uh, hiv can present as a nephropathy it can present in in terms of pancytopenia splenomegaly uh, I mean, we could we could explain his predisposition. HIV could present as any one of these things or the combination of things. I, I guess, uh, having said that, I, I, I think I'd, and this is back to the social history, but, but more to the point is the fact that we don't see um, a problem with his marrow is, number one, I'd go and look at the marrow because I'm like, not like sure what that means. Yourself? Well, I'd, I'd take you, Danny. You'd, you'd be helpful. <laughs> Um, yeah, maybe for yeah. comic relief. I, I can't look at yeah. it. I don't know what I. I don't even know what to ask. Right? If they say this well, is a perfectly but, normal marrow, what what are you looking for? 
I'm curious. Right, I'm not sure that it's perfectly normal. Oftentimes it's said there's no evidence of malignancy when it's really not normal. And given ah. the context of the um, of the presentation, oftentimes the people that are interpreting pathologies or radiologies are only privy to a symptom complex that we're not even, or, or no symptom complex. Mm. So I'd go and look at it with that view in mind. Um, and there could be sampling errors from uh, yeah. bone marrows as well, yeah. depending on, they maybe they re-looked at it and say, oh, actually it's pretty hypocellular, it wasn't a good core. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. And the other thing is that still in with the process of myelomas, uh, I mean, he could have an IgD myeloma. I mean, so I guess the other thing is to look at his bones by imaging. And we used to do skeletal surveys, but now the surveys are done by CT, which are more sensitive. So I think it's still along those lines. Um, I think it's very unlikely because those diseases do not usually have splenomegaly. But that's, that's what I would do next in the next 24 hours or the next 10 or 12 hours. Okay. Great. Well, Amanda, I, I don't have anything to add to that. That makes a lot of sense. Amanda, uh, what did you folks do in the next 24 hours? Um, just like Dr. Chan had said, is what we sent off is we sent off the 125 hydroxy vitamin D level and the, the PTH-related protein. Uh, but those take some time to come back. Um, as well as we also went back to radiology and we actually reviewed the images with two separate radiologists just to make sure that they didn't find any other findings on there. And they Again, agree that there's no lymphadenopathy, there's no significant bone lesions. Uh, and we also, as Dr. Hassan had alluded to earlier, we also reviewed the imaging findings with urology. And they said, given the normal PSA uh, and that there's no bony metastases, that it's really unlikely to be prostate cancer. And so at this point, we, we start giving the, the patient continuous fluids. Uh, and the calcium gets a bit better at 2.62. Uh, and then over kind of the next two to three days, the creatinine improves slightly, gets down to about the low 500s, but still plateaus in that, that range. Yikes. Okay. And <laughs> what position is he in in line for the renal biopsy? Is he third or second? Do we know, <laughs> do we know yet? You know, it's interesting because we asked nephrology to, to weigh in quite early on. And kind of at this point, they said we think the, the renal injury is most likely in keeping with uh, hypercalcemia and the ACE inhibitor and at this point they didn't recommend doing a renal biopsy and they said continue to work up malignancy associated hypercalcemia hmm. I, you know and and reasonably they could say like well I mean like if the PTHRP comes back wildly high then you kind of know that that like that starts to lend itself to some kind of malignancy related disorder and so then yeah like maybe the, a kidney biopsy would not be the next test of choice um, if you had that info. So, you know, it, it, we look at it in retrospect and we're like, oh, just biopsy it, geez. But mm -hmm. actually at the time, maybe it makes sense to be like, let's let's like wait a minute and kind of see you have other outstanding workup coming back. Um, chase those things down and then and then we'll we'll kind of talk again. How did you take that that consultation? What did you do? Or what were you thinking, Amanda? I think it's interesting because the hypercalcemia was, I think, really moderate at, at the highest. And like he didn't have any pre-existing history of any kind of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. His, his oral intake was okay. So we didn't really have any significant pre-renal injuries that really would expect me to have such a degree of an AKI between just the, the hypercalcemia and, and the ACE inhibitor. And so it didn't completely fit it at this point. Yeah. Okay. That makes, that makes good sense. All right. Um, and how about, can you kind of clarify for me, the pulmonary nodules that we're seeing, were these like little tiny little dots or were these like legitimate unexplained pulmonary nodules? Because when you do a good CT scan, you just see like there's there's always a, a little something here and there. And the radiologists are usually pretty good about saying like this is very, like these are small nodules, do not need to be followed. But this guy has a history of smoking, so I wonder, if, I, mm -hmm. I guess, I, I think you told us they said repeat a CT in three months, something like mm -hmm. that. But that that's something that I'd be interested in. You reviewed the scans with radiology. Did they have any other clarification there? They didn't. They, they, I have the report here, and it says that there's a few tiny bilateral nonspecific pulmonary nodules with the largest in the right upper lobe, and this uh, measuring two, or sorry, four millimeters. And then there was a 13 millimeter thin opacity, approximately 
at the right minor slash major fissure, likely related to some focal atelectasis or scarring. And then there is a second eight millimeter opacity in the right lung base, approximately at the major fissure, and again favors atelectasis. Hmm. And so, the, really, the recommendation after they reviewed it was to repeat imaging in in three months. Okay. So I guess you had a couple of tests outstanding, um, and why don't you kind of why don't we skip forward to that? What what did what came back next? Yeah. So surprisingly, the the, the vitamin D level and the PTH related protein took a very long time to to come back. I think there were some issues with at least the vitamin D level and it getting drawn and sent off. Uh, and so this ended up being quite a a bit into his admission. So we we're probably now seven to eight days into his admission, and unfortunately, the patient's feeling quite. He feels well. He's trying to go on night passes at this point. Um, but every time he comes off the IV fluids, his hypercalcemia gets worse, kind of to the 2.8 to 3.1 region any time that the, the fluids are stopped. And this is despite giving him a couple doses of pomidronate and as well as uh, denosumab as well. Oh. And then we also asked endocrinology just to make sure that there was nothing else that we could mucin. And they said just to complete the, the workup for the hypercalcemia, they sent off an IGF-1 level, an AM cortisol, and a, a TSH, which were all normal. But he didn't really, he didn't have any symptoms associated with those conditions. Hmm. And so this is kind of the point where we're at, where it's like eight or nine days. We thought like the uh, PTH-related protein and the vitamin D level would be really helpful, but we're kind of at an impasse. So let's Let's go with the idea that Number one, he has an elevated vitamin D level. So if he does, we're still in the same situation we were before. If he has a normal <laughs> vitamin D level, we're not any further ahead. And if he has a low vitamin D level, we better give him vitamin D. That'll make his <laughs> calcium go up. <laughs> He's still asymptomatic. We've kept him in to have some fluids. He doesn't feel any different, but we feel better because his numbers are better. So I don't know. Well, actually, I'm, Go ahead, Barry, sir. Well, I actually had a thought. I was just thinking, I just, this is just, uh, his creatinine is really high. It almost sounds like he has CKD. He's plateaued at 500. And I think Amanda, you said his kidneys were small and there's some cysts, something mm-hmm. like that. that. That sounds a bit CKD-ish. Maybe he had AKN and CKD. Hard to say. But regardless, this is, he's basically stage four, not five kidney failure, right? Usually these, and when the kidneys don't work, can't you need calcitriol so because you cannot make 25 hydroxy to 125 hydroxy let's assume that he has 25 hydroxy like most people have some degree something is making if i i'm i know i'm thinking along that if i'm thinking along that line it's not pthrp is not elevated then something is making him giving him 125 hydroxy Mm-hmm. Yeah, if he, if he has it, I mean, if he has as, it. as I said at the outset, we don't know if this is acute renal failure or chronic. I mean, it, his numbers could go with either. And I say it's a testimony to him that he stayed in hospital. Uh, he felt I'm, fine all along. I'm curious if if the 125 is taking a really long time to come back, and you think it might be elevated. If you just do a 25, which might take a shorter amount of time, if that was low. Would that kind of tell you that probably the 125 is high uh, because the calcium's high? Does that does that uh, you know kind of solve it, or uh, they could just both be low? We really need to wait for that test to come back. Like the 25 hydroxy would be used up to make the 125 that type of thing, uh, or if it was suppressed because of hypercalcemia. Oh, that I don't know. Okay, I, th- I think I've just made something up. So we'll, we'll no, ignore I, that. I think to... you're right. No, I think you're right, Danny. It's just, I mean, uh, this guy, I mean, really, if we took out his pancytopenia and his splenomegaly, we could play around. I mean, those are the two outliers here, even though he has no symptoms, that point us to a more ominous problem than just an exogenous substance or... Um, so So whatever's, per, you know, whatever's contributing to those two... I think probably is contributing to his his laboratory abnormalities, and we're hmm. not there yet. All right. Well, you know, I think okay. So I I guess we really want those tests to come back, but it's taking a really long time, and naturally people are going to get antsy. Uh, Amanda, how did you kind of balance moving ahead with other tests versus just like it, we actually just have to be patient and wait for that to come back? Well, the the patient was 
you know, they felt very well. And so they, they were really empty to go home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a, it's a discussion with the, the patient. And at this point, as you guys have talked about earlier, is really the, the only other organ that we can say that definitely has involvement is uh, the kidney. And so at this point is when we had a revisited the conversation with nephrology about the benefits of doing or risks of doing a renal biopsy. Yeah, that makes sense. What do they have to say? At this point, like with the discussion with the, the patient, they're all in agreement that uh, to proceed with the, the renal biopsy. Yay. Okay. <laughs> so uh, what did you guys uh, what did you guys find on that, that biopsy or how'd that go? So before we go there, I, I think it'd be helpful to under to I mean, it's, what what do we expect that we're going to see on the biopsy? I mean, so are we going to see glomerular disease, interstitial disease? Are we going to see exogenous? Are we going to see an infiltrative disease or an ATN? I mean, what what's so? What do you think? I, Barry? I, what, I'll what answer. The, uh, it, it's rhetorical, and and I can just say that. I don't know. It's still the biggest guess. Uh, I don't have a. I, I don't think he's got glomerular disease. I mean, he could, and, and with small kidneys, I think he's going to have chronic interstitial disease. Uh, that's kind of where I'm. I'm going. So he's got chronic. I, I think. I don't think he's got anything acute. I think it's chronic. Blah 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 blah. Whatever. Mm-hmm. And Bei Chen, what about you? Like, I, 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 I'm, no. I'll, I'll make a comment after, but I'm curious if you have any. Uh, I, 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 I mean, if I, if I was asking nephro, nephrology regarding a renal biopsy, honestly, I don't even, that, that question didn't even come into my mind because I don't even know what to, to biopsy, what I'm looking for, as Dr. Kasim was saying, that can tie that and hypercalcemia together, unless sarcoid and lymphoma or, ren- or maybe some renal cancers, like perineoplastically can cause it, but I, I can't think of anything else. I think you're making a really good point, BK, about um, like your pretest probability, like going back to just that concept of like you really should have a pretest probability before you do a test, as opposed to like, a, gee, I don't know, let's just uh, see what the tissue tells us it is. Because we've definitely had a lot of cases on here where we pursue tissue, it the, it's read out, you know, and that ended up being incorrect. Either they didn't have enough information or they, you know, it was a technically reasonable job of reading the pathologic correlation actually gave you a different diagnosis. And I think that you're less likely to be fooled by um, an incorrectly labeled pathology um, or, you know, a, a slightly incorrect pathology report if you kind of know what's top of your list going into it. So if in this one we're saying top of like you know you point kind of given us a, a couple of categories of disease but we only had trace protein and blood so you know we're not convinced this is a nephrotic nephritic syndrome his albumin was was high so he's not picking out tons of protein um so that category which could have included you know HIV and other various infections various malignancies autoimmune diseases that just goes way down and then of the remaining um, types, we're not really sure which ones fit, but I'm not sure that I have other better tests in mind. I mean, I'm not the general internist here, but I'm not sure that I have better tests. So while I would love to go into this with a good pretest probability, we're kind of faced with a situation where we don't, we don't quite have one. We have some guesses. And so like what what's the alternative i suppose is really what i'm getting at so you're saying like well i'm not sure i would or or wondering if we should even do it at this moment but what else what do you propose in its place Uh, before we do that danny i I have a question for you i i asked a question i know but the usefulness (laughs) the usefulness in this situation of a crp um that's wild we got so deep into a case and i didn't order a crp Nuts. Um, that's a good question. I I don't think that it's going to have high utility. Um, you, you disagree? It's not that I disagree. It's I mean, we're not certain if this is us coming along and him saying I think I have a decreased urine output and then doing all of these tests and he's still feeling fine. So if he has, and we're wondering if he has an an ongoing disease that's or this is just a chronic disease and. And how helpful would a CRP be in distinguishing those that 
those categories, not maybe those diseases, mm-hmm. but those categories. And back to you, Danny. Um, I'm not sure that a CRP on its own is going to be particularly compelling for a precise disease. I think it'll just kind of maybe for that question about like, is there still an ongoing process, which is that's that's what you're asking. So I think that's actually a, a clever way of using it is not to to d- determine acuity, but determine uh, activity. But I think that's also something that we, even if we confirm activity, whether we confirm activity or not, I think, I, I kind of think that the answer is probably in one of the affected organs. And while we don't do biopsies lightly, I think that that might be the fastest way towards um, the, a diagnosis here. I There very well might be some twists coming up in the case, I, I, I don't know. So maybe... Uh, it, any other thoughts before we just uh, move back over to Amanda? All right. I would be asking yeah. for the kidney biopsies, just more from the kidney's perspective itself. Uh, like it's almost excluding the hypercalcemia. Hypercalcemia is like we don't have a good explanation why this, the kidneys are failing in of themselves, regardless of the calcium. Mm. Uh, but uh, maybe there we find something that ties them together. Uh, and it is the safer things to biopsy because if not, the next thing that we have that's abnormal is a spleen, and biopsying <laughs> that is very hard. Yeah, yeah. for sure. We're, we'll for both sure. we'll all be in Denver when you biopsy the spleen, Barry. You go right ahead. <laughs> let us let us know how you do. Okay. All right. So, uh, Amanda. Yeah. For what it's worth, we did do a CRP, and it was seven point five. Aha. Uh-huh. I don't know if that changes anything. But. Well, well, it does. I mean, I, I mean, from my point of view, I, I mean, this this makes it less likely to me that this is an acute process and more likely it's a chronic disease process. I don't know if I can say that categorically, but that's how I, I view it. All right, Amanda. Yeah. Tell, tell us about that biopsy. Yeah, interesting. So we were waiting for the biopsy. And to be honest, we were reviewing the differential diagnosis for hypercalcemia and at this point, we felt like we had ruled out a lot of the main categories. And so, you know, other than like the, the prostate findings that we talked to urology and they said this unlikely prostate malignancy, we even talked to GI at this point and said, like, is there any usefulness in doing a colonoscopy to see if there's anything that we missed intraluminally? And again, they said, you know, without any bony findings or um, CT evidence that it's unlikely to be metastatic cancer causing this um, these findings. And when we reviewed the differential, one of the things that we were wondering about was if it's renal-limited sarcoidosis, which is like a very rare entity, but certainly is something that was kind of left there. And so we were kind of left with this, is it sarcoid versus is it maybe this PTH-related protein or a malignancy still? Mm. Um, and so we called rheumatology actually with that question of, could this be sarcoidosis? And so they did weigh in and, and they said, you know, they felt oh, like could it was be, unlikely. could not be. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, they said possibly, but really rare. <laughs> yeah, could very be. Very unusual presentation. Um, but they also agreed. They're like, you should probably get a renal biopsy at this point to, to help point, point the needle in a direction. And so we eventually got the biopsy probably a day or two later. And the prelim result comes back as the, the renal biopsy showed diffuse granulomatous interstitial nephritis with abundant multinucleated giant cells uh, with evidence of uh, non-casing necrosis. And these findings are consistent with clinical suspicion for sarcoid. Whoa. <laughs> there you go. That's, uh, that's really fascinating. So, so before, we, uh, before we call it, Barry and Barry, is that an adequate explanation for what we have seen? I support Barry Chan actually raised the possibility initially of sarcoid, and mm-hmm. I think that's a really good possibility. I think it's an explanation. I, I'm only going to share with you a caveat that a case that I saw about a year ago where the pathologists uh, on review of a biopsy with these very, very characteristic and classical non-caseating granuloma making the diagnosis of sarcoid irrefutable two weeks later when the TB cultures came back positive said, <laughs> well... <laughs> It could happen, <laughs> so I'm not. I um, even even in the hands of an experienced pathologist, there's not a specific diagnostic test that would make the, sarcoid is such a an unusual, not an unusual, but it's such a 
phenotypic exam uh, diagnosis that I think we're still. I I think this is probably sarcoidosis. Just that I don't want us to be too comfortable on you know. And I would have to look up the literature to see uh, the findings of non mediastinal non non lymphadenopathy related sarcoidosis involving the spleen and the kidneys because the marrow's spared and um, the inflammatory and, and usually I would suggest that oftentimes as evidenced by erythema nodosum this is an inflammatory process and at least one of the tests for inflammation and maybe two as they as, as pep is normal too suggests this is pretty uh, quiescent and so uh, m- maybe uh, maybe this is chronic disease I don't know I mean there's just I, I'm I'm arguing with myself good for Barry Chan for considering this but it's it's yeah I'm interested to see what you did next yeah like you said I actually looked at the literature for this and the uh, renal limited sarcoid without any classic pulmonary sarcoidosis is extremely rare it's on the Spectre just case reports that I could find um, and even renal sarcoid from what I could see is, occurs in less than 10% of patients so this makes this just a very unusual presentation um, what we ended up doing for this patient is we gave them prednisone, 80 milligrams daily, as well as hydroxychloroquine for the, the hypercalcemia. And the calcium normalized really quickly. They were able to get off all the IV fluids. Um, and within about a month of the steroids initiation, the, the creatinine decreased to about 200 points. But he does have some underlying now baseline CKD, and his creatinine's plateaued around 300 to 320. What's his vitamin D level? Yeah, his activated vitamin D level was elevated. It was uh, 235, with the upper limit of normal being 170. Wow. But that came um, back after the renal results, or the biopsy results. Can, can I ask, though, um, just because sarcoid kind of notoriously, as you've pointed out, is not exclusive to the kidneys, and we did find some pulmonary nodules on that CT, are we sure that it's renal limited? Because like, usually when we're working up systemic sarcoid, we also think about you know even asymptomatic cardiac disease, asymptomatic ocular disease. So I wonder if those things were kind of screened for during his admission. Like, did he have even an echo as a screening test? Not not good enough to rule out cardiac sarcoid, but a pretty reasonable test for a clinically significant cardiac sarcoid, perhaps. Yeah, he had an opto exam in hospital, and there wasn't any evidence of sarcoid involvement in the eye. Um, as far as I can recall from all the Carconnect, he doesn't have any uh, previous echoes. His ECG was normal... Uh, and no conduction disease that was seen on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did review the imaging findings with uh, respirology. And again, they didn't think it was in keeping with uh, pulmonary sarcoid, but certainly like the some of those nodular findings could be. Just a, pretty suspicious, like to have nodules mm-hmm. and you have a disease specifically known to have pulmonary nodules. I think that, that it takes it from an unlikely finding to maybe bump it up a notch to a, you know, a possible finding. Just because, mm-hmm. as you pointed out, just the rarity of the diagnosis that you've made here, um, that is that is a fascinating find. Wow, very good job. Um, I guess also there the the spleen is enlarged, so so maybe mm-hmm. yeah. you know there there might be some sarcoid in the spleen spleen as well, which isn't that uncommon. <laughs> yeah. So do you think his pancytopenia is related to his splenomegaly? That's what we thought, and then um, his pancytopenia did get better with with steroids. And he presented to the hospital about, I would say, about two months ago, unfortunately, with a, a, a GI bleed, probably secondary to the steroids. But they, they re-imaged him at that point with the abdopain, and, and the spleen was normal size at that time. There you go. Okay. Interesting. Well, he's, he's prednisone deficient. Yeah, <laughs> prednisone deficiency. Yeah. I can't believe Endo didn't uh, catch prednisone deficiency. <laughs> Um, that's a that's a great case, Amanda. Thank you so much for uh, yeah. for bringing that to, to us. Any uh, take homes from uh, the two berries? Well, I would say that Barry Chan nailed it um, at the beginning using a Venn diagram and no history. He uh, came to the the conclusion that these are this is the possibility. I have to. I would like to talk to the patient and hear if he's ever going to stop at a walking clinic again when he just decides he's not peeing so much or just keep walking. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, uh, you know, a, a great way to link the findings together that, that we had at admission, high calcium, renal dysfunction, which initially we kind of labeled as AKI, but, you know, 
more careful labeling made it more of a possible CKD. The cytopenia is the splenomegaly. I, I, I'm kind of impressed by the, the physical exam. I actually don't find that the spleen, I think it's easy to get a positive Castells because everyone's always like, mm-hmm. oh, they've, they've eaten within a, an hour or two. So maybe it's just related to that. I personally find the spleen not the easiest to palpate. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, those are deficiencies of my examination. But I, I find that a hard component of the exam to trust. And uh, so I'm I'm impressed by the, the excellent resident team that, that found those things. So very Danny, nicely. Danny, uh, while you're, uh, while you're uh, summarizing the case, can you comment on the, his therapy? And um, specifically, yeah. the fact he's had a GI bleed, would you continue his therapies? For, for sarcoidosis, so for many types of sarcoidosis, steroid monotherapy can be successful. In patients with severe sarcoid or organ-threatening sarcoid, we're more likely to start some kind of steroid-sparing agent up front. And often, if it's ocular disease or respiratory disease or skin disease, methotrexate and azathioprine mycophenolate are kind of the you know, I'd say kind of the most common three used. Plaquenil actually is not, to, to my knowledge, not commonly used as a first-line steroid-sparing therapy, except in milder sarcoid. I think you said hydroxychloroquine. Did I? Maybe I misheard mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I think like the, this person's, and maybe that's what the case report suggested to do, but that is a little less typical from from my perspective. But maybe I'm. Maybe I'm a bit of an over-treater, but I would be inclined here to use something more in the family. We, we can't use methotrexate because of his renal dysfunction, so maybe something like AZA, MMF. And then once you start to move into the biologics, you're looking at TNF inhibitors would be the first-line agents, um, excluding etanercept, which does not work on granulomatous disease. So, and then you would follow all of the markers of his disease, and we know his spleen indicates disease cytopenias, um, his calcium, of course, and um, uh, follow those moving forward. And then treatment durations are variable with limited evidence to tell us how long to treat sarcoid patients for. But I think people like to see remission or stable disease for one to two years. The fact that he's had a GI bleed, how would that influence your ongoing therapy? Um, it, 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 I would try and bring down those steroids as quick as possible. So me personally, I never really go above 60 milligrams of oral prednisone unless I'm pulsing someone. Um, so I think I heard 80. Um, there's just not a great deal of evidence guiding our choices in steroids up to 100 milligrams. Like why is why 50, why 60? These are made up numbers. They're not real. But conventionally, we say a milligram per kilogram. But then everyone kind of just... You know, no one, no one's more than 60 kilograms um, when you're using prednisone often. I think that, yeah, I would be try and be as aggressive as I could about tapering the prednisone. You do have some nice indicators of disease activity that you can use, like the cytopenias. As an example, right, you can do blood work regularly and monitor that or the calcium. So maybe this is one where you can taper a bit faster. But I think it's, you know, that's unfortunate. I make sure he's on proper prophylaxis, infectious prophylaxis. Um, he's 69. I would make sure he's on, um, if he can tolerate a bisphosphonate with his renal function, I, I doubt it. So maybe um, talk to Nephro about Prolia uh, going forward. Things like that, right? Like, uh, with a lo- like with a lot of rheumatologic diseases, we, we or, or a lot of diseases in general, we're good at treating the disease, and then people end up passing or getting very sick from the side effects of the treatment. And so kind of having that checklist of like, okay, all of my patients I'm putting on 80 or whatever you're using, a prednisone, everyone we need to consider A, B, C, D. And that's how you kind of try and uh, head off any of those nasty outcomes. You know, the GI bleed, um, I, I think he was already on pantoprazole when he came into hospital. So that that's just, that's unfortunate, but that's a major side effect mm-hmm. of treatment. So it would just be good treatment, steroid-sparing agents, try and get that dose down and pray, I suppose. Amanda, what was the rationale that you learned for the uh, hydroxychloroquine? Or I was what reading was... that yeah. in some cases that they use it for the hypercalcemia associated with the sarcoidosis, especially with the, the renal involvement from, from what I could see. 
Yeah, so that that might just be a, a blind spot for me. I'm not. We don't really know how hydroxychloroquine works, like the mechanism of action. So I I wouldn't personally specifically be aware of a a, a way that it you know interacts with granulomas in particular. But the very good news is that it's an incredibly light medication. Yeah, probably safer <laughs> than Tylenol and Advil for sure. So like I I think like if this cocktail works, Pred and hydroxychloroquine. That's a huge win for that patient. So it's probably a great idea. Um, and if it doesn't work, then you can always step up therapy. So, like, you know, yeah. I think it just depends on how ill someone is before your eyes. And, of course, reviewing that literature around precisely the granulomatous manifestations, that that is like, uh, of course, I'd have to hit the books. It's a really unusual case. So um, I, I think uh, it sounds like they had a, a, good, a good team in hospital taking care of them. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for such a fascinating case. That was a great one to work through. And uh, definitely give us an update if, uh, you know, you ever find out um, where the patient ends up in a, a year or two. Mm-hmm. Will do. Thanks so much for having me today. It's fantastic hearing all your insights and reasoning throughout the case. And uh, Berries, thank you so much for uh, working through that case with me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having us. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> All right, everyone. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. We will catch you at the next episode in a few short weeks. Take care. 